The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, beginning at verse 20. When your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord displayed before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our lasting good so as to keep us alive as is now the case. If we diligently observe this entire commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, we will be in the right. Some of you have heard me tell this story before about how 20 years ago now, I was the interim preaching minister at a church in Fayetteville, Arkansas. After teaching all week, I would fly down on Saturday, do the Sunday morning thing, and then fly back that afternoon. It was exhausting, but also exhilarating. I fell in love with those people and have friends there all these years later, one of whom was a university professor, retired university professor, and we hit it off right away because she and I could exchange books that we were reading. So what, what are you reading? What are you reading? One week, she said, I got a story to tell you. You won't believe it. She had gone to the bookstore looking for something on the Great Depression. Not a specific title or author, just something on the Great Depression. So naturally, she asked for help. And the co-ed at the desk said, follow me. So she followed, they get to this section, and my friend looked up and it said, self-help. And she was confused, and, <laughs> and then she chuckled. She said, oh, I think you misunderstood me. I don't want a book on depression. I want a book on the Great Depression. You know, the Great Depression. And before the young woman walked off, she said, look, there are all kinds of depression. You're going to have to figure out what kind you have. <laughs> Do you think there's a kind of depression that sets in when one generation figures out that the next is clueless about history? Kind of makes you wonder. In the text that we read, it says that now when the time comes, and the kids are going to ask, so what does all this religious stuff mean to you? These ordinances and statutes and all that stuff. You're to tell them the story. You're to tell them the history of how we were slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt and God brought us out. Tell them the story. One of the things I've been reading of late besides Deuteronomy is a book by biblical scholar Brent Strawn called The Old Testament is Dying. I thought the title might be a little bit over the top, a little melodramatic, some hyperbole, but I'm not so sure. He, he points out, for instance, that in his area, there are all kinds of churches that claim to be apostolic. That's a New Testament term, and they even call themselves New Testament churches. Or how about the fact of how often on any given Sunday, preachers and Sunday school teachers alike bashing the Jews distancing themselves from the God of the Old Testament or picking on the Pharisees. The Old Testament is dying, he says, and he compares it to a language. 
you know, like a, a Native American dialect that slowly slips away and no one can read it or understand it or speak it anymore. Do you know anyone who's fluent in Old Testament? In the passage, Moses says, when the kids ask, you're to give them an answer. What does all this stuff mean? Now, I kind of picture this unfolding in two different ways. One is the cynic, you know, the skeptic with arms crossed across the chest and says, what is all this church stuff? What is this talk about stewardship? That's a con job. What, what, what does all this mean? I mean, how could anybody have access to God if there even is a God? Or maybe that ultimate question when they say, and why should I go? So it could come that way. You could read it that way. But you could also read it as the mind of a seeker. When our middle child was late grade school, she was always asking religious questions about God and Bible. And in middle school, when we would wait for the bell to ring outside of the building, she started having me teach her some Greek. She was always seeking. I suppose my own journey has kind of gone both directions. I remember asking my Roman Catholic grandmother, so what does that statue of Mary mean up there? And, and why do you light that candle after you take communion? And what is this thing about dipping the water and making this cross on your forehead? What, what is all that? But eventually, I think I crossed my arms because I said, I don't know why we go to church. And my parents said, he makes a good point. And we quit. Deuteronomy says that seeker or cynic were to tell them the story. Pass it on. You, you've probably heard about the nuns and the duns. The nuns are not those Roman Catholics with the habits and the hats. This is the nun as in, what's your particular religious preference and the people who check, none. And the duns are the folks who've identified with the church but who have said, I'm out of here. I'm done with it. And it is not just among Christians this is happening. Jewish synagogues are experiencing it themselves. Sarah Hurwitz, who was the principal uh, speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama, she talks about growing up in the synagogue. And she went to a public school, but three days a week after school, her parents would cart her over to the synagogue for synagogue school, where she learned Hebrew and and learned the Bible and the stories. But there came a moment. For her, she described it as a moment of, of clarity. She was done with this. It seemed childish. She, she wanted to read romance novels and flirt with boys. So she left. Now, she writes a memoir because she describes coming back. But there is no guarantee that the Duns are coming back. And I think we could have a really interesting conversation about the future of the church. If we're celebrating the next 100, how many of them will be here? So many people I talk to will talk about their adult kids who grew up in church and who no longer go. And then I'll almost always hear someone say, 
well, kids are the future of the church, right? The youth, the kids. I, I don't know about that. I kind of see it two ways. Here's how I would explain it. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy and in this passage, there is this kind of clever switch between pronouns that happens. And it's here in this passage. If you hear it, listen. Listen. So in the future, when the kids ask you, so what does all this stuff mean to you, to you, to you? The answer is, we were slaves in Egypt. And it's not the we of your mom and I. It's the we of the family. We were slaves in Egypt. Even if we weren't there, we were slaves in Egypt. So imagine a girl graduating from high school. She goes off to MU, KU, wherever she goes. She meets a friend. friend says, so where are you from? Kansas City. Oh, me too. Yeah, I went to Shawnee Mission East. And that's the way it would unfold. I mean, what would happen if she said, so where are you from? Oh, we were slaves in Egypt. She's not getting into the sorority if she answers like that. I mean, people are going to think she's kind of off. But that is the idea. And the idea is that kids aren't just the future of the church. They're the present of the church and the past of the church. All of us caught up together. I, I love the story that Elie Wiesel tells on himself. You, you may know the name. He, he wrote the memoir, Night, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and it is a dark, dark story of surviving the Holocaust. But this story is totally different. He grew up going to Jewish school, and he came home one day, third grade, fourth grade, whatever it was, and he was so excited. He said, Mom, Mom, Sarah's going to have a baby. Have you heard that? Sarah's going to have a baby. And his mom was trying to race through her mind. Is one of the secretaries at the school named Sarah? Is it maybe one of his friend's moms? And so she said, who? And he said, Sarah, you know Abraham's wife in Genesis. <laughs> That's how Jews read the Bible. That's how they tell their history. It is still happening, and you're enfolded back into it. That's why God's called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. See, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is dying, but he doesn't want the teachings to die. They're supposed to live on. And this is what sociologists and philosophers call a social imaginary, which is not when you imagine you have more friends than you do. A social imaginary is when you get caught up in a group, even if you're not quite in the group. So, for instance, when John F. Kennedy came to my hometown of Houston in the early 60s, and he said, we choose to go to the moon. Well, he wasn't going to the moon. We weren't going to the moon. And yet, within a decade, we all sat glued to our TVs and watched as Neil Armstrong put that foot down. And we said, we did it. We did it. But we didn't do it. I didn't put my foot on the moon. But in a way, we did. And it happens in sports, too. How many times after the Royals won the World Series and the Chiefs won the Super Bowl did you hear someone say, we won, we won, can you believe it, we won? But I don't know anybody that played infield with Moustakas or caught a pass from Mahomes, 
And yet, in the moment, we were part of a we. That's a social imaginary. And it can work for good, but it can also work for evil. Hitler knew all about the power of it. When he came to office in 1933, one of the first things he did was to close down the schools and to fire the teachers who were not part of his regime. He made sure everyone agreed with his view. And children ages 10 to 18 had to enroll in the Hitler youth movement. He understood that. At the very same time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor and resistor of the Nazi movement, he was writing about the importance of Sunday school, of forming people for God in the school. In fact, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on that very topic. And he had these two terms that he used, a society and a community. And it was a play on words in German because they sounded a lot alike, but they were totally different. A society, as he defined it, was about progress and now. And kids were just future people, future workers, future contributors. But a community, Bonhoeffer said, is about now and it is about everybody, young and old alike, caught up together making a new world. Deuteronomy says that God has called them out of the society of Egypt, Pharaoh's Egypt, of slavery and death, and called them to build a community of life and freedom. Only that's not exactly right. Did, did you hear it? I said, called them. It's us. God brought us out of Egypt and called us to build a new world. Two years ago this summer, I got to hear Ibu Patel speak, and he is so impressive. He's an American-born Muslim, grew up in Chicago, still lives and works there. And about the year 2000, he formed an international movement, the Interfaith Youth Corps. It's an amazing thing. Because, see, he formed it about the time, it was taking shape about the time of the 9-11 attacks. And one of the things that absolutely blew him away was looking at the photos of the attackers, most of whom could not yet grow a beard. And he recognized that youth want to make a difference, maybe for ill, but maybe for good. And so he formed this, this core. And what happens is he brings together Muslims and Christians and Jews and atheists and all of these kids and from factions within those. And they work together in building schools and homes and all the while encouraging conversation about their views from their perspective on what it means to change the world. Isn't that great? So if the kids ever ask... So why are we building this new world? Why are we doing all this? What does this all mean? You got to figure out what you're going to say. I don't have it like memorized as a speech or anything. I know this. I would start with we. And I'd probably say something about, hey, did you hear? Sarah's going to have a baby. Can you believe this? Sarah is going to have a baby. And get this, 
she's not the only one. 